Good evening. I was waiting for 17 buzzers to tell us to start or end, whichever. So glad to have you here and uh, on this midweek Bible study period. And uh, hope that you've had a good day. Hope that you're in good health. And we are blessed to be together as a family of God. And we, if you're visiting here, we're so glad to have you. Our summer series is through the months of June, July, and August. And a Christian worldview has been the topic. And uh, I had a student on Monday morning that uh, from the back said something about, uh, well, the eclipse, you know, happened at 1.35. That was right between two classes, and this was right before. And they said, uh, some say that's gonna, that this marks the end of time. And I thought, what do you, answer do you give to that? So I said, well, it could be, um, but um, are you prepared? Are you ready <laughs> in case it is? <laughs> The uh, apostles were a little confused on that. Matthew 24 says that they thought that there was no way they could conceive of the end of time without, of course, uh, it being at the same time the end of the temple that had been built, you know, a thousand years before by, by um, Solomon and then, and then uh, reconstructed after the destruction of Nebuchadnezzar. And Jesus has to clarify that, look, there's a destruction of the temple and it's going to happen pretty soon. And there was all the warnings, the first part of Matthew 24. And then, and then there's the end times. So it's not a subject that our secular society talks about a lot. Um, but uh, we need to. And we need to secure what we know from Scripture as the, what is given to us with regard to end times. Which could happen tonight or any day. The message of Jesus is be prepared. That's what he told the apostles on that occasion. So we thank Randy Medlin from University just down the road for coming, and we're going to give for the rest of the time to him, and uh, we're so grateful for the work that he does with the University Church and that body of believers down there, and uh, let's pray to God and give thanks for this day. Father in heaven, thank you for being our God, for creating the universe that we live in, and, and for uh, caring for us so that you would busy yourself to fix that which we broke long ago. We uh, are grateful to be called your children by the blood of Christ, and we thank you for your, your care for us. And uh, we ask the blessings on our world that seems to ignore or deny. We ask that you would help us to be that shining light uh, and to be people that welcome the second return of your Son, at the same time that we are grateful we have another day and maybe another week uh, to share our faith and to bring others back to the table, back to your table, back to your family. Bless Brother Medlin. Thank you for uh, allowing us to be here tonight. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. All right. I'm glad to be here tonight. I appreciate your presence. I know Wednesday nights are tough for everybody, but you're here and that indicates your spiritual interest. Also glad that uh, Terry finally closed down the introduction before he covered all my material. <laughs> and uh, despite the fact that I just preached down the road, what is that, a mile and a half, two miles from here? Uh, if you don't know who I am, that's okay. That doesn't hurt my feelings at all. Uh, on vacation a, a few months ago, me and I visited Redland Road, and I introduced myself to 10 or 12 different people before I finally had somebody goes, I've heard that name. And, I, and then when she found out that I preached at university, 
she it was all apologetic, and she, and she goes, oh, did you just start there? I said, yes, ma'am, 17 years ago. So <laughs> anyway, I kind of feel like the guy that uh, uh, placed membership with the congregation, he didn't, he didn't really know the people that well. By the way, we've got some university people here. And uh, so if you've heard my jokes or illustrations, please act like it's the first time you've ever heard them. But now that I reflect, you didn't laugh then either. But anyway, <laughs> I feel like the guy that uh, placed membership with the congregation, he didn't know the people very well. And so he decided to just, you know, jump right into the work and get involved. And, and uh, so he became a part of the greeting ministry. And in that particular congregation, they didn't greet people just at the door. They would go out into the parking lot. And especially help elderly people who had difficulty in, in, uh, in moving around and had to use walkers and that kind of thing. Help them into the building. And so he did that with this nice lady. Met her at the car, helped her up the steps into the building. And he said, ma'am, where would you like to sit? And she said, I want to sit right down front. He goes, ma'am, you might not want to do that. She said, why? He said, well, I've been here long enough to know that our preacher, ah, he's kind of dry. He's, he's a little boring. You might want to sit toward the back where you can take a nap, if you know what I mean. She goes, young man, do you have any idea who I am? And he said, no. She said, I am the preacher's mother. <laughs> he said, do you have any idea who I am? She said, no. He said, good. <laughs> so you don't have to know who I am. I'm glad you're here tonight with an open mind, open Bible that we can study together. I have, uh, Terry didn't really assign this uh, topic to me. He gave me some choices, and I chose this one out of a, a, a list that he had provided. And uh, I'm delighted to be able to speak on this issue. It's one that's absolutely fascinating to me, and it also is one that gives me a great deal of hope, confidence, and spiritual assurance. And, and I hope that that will imbue you with greater confidence and, and greater assurance from having studied this subject again tonight. I, I've chosen to entitle my lesson because I'm a music lo lover after the 1987 REM song, It's the End of the World as We Know It. And if you can remember that song, you've just dated yourself. But anyway, that's what I've chosen to entitle this lesson tonight. I believe that you'll find this subject to be a subject of universal interest for at least two completely different reasons. One, the world at large, and we read a lot about this recently, the world at large is interested in knowing how the world will end for material and ecological reasons. Uh, almost on a daily basis, when I read the Montgomery Advertiser, I, I read some article about global warming will that eventually cause life on Earth to be uh, untenable and, and those kinds of things. And so the world's focus is on the material, on the physical universe. While those of us who are spiritual minded, who are God's people, we're focused on the end of time for a completely different reason, and that's spiritual. We want to know what will happen to the eternal souls of men and women when, when that time comes. And, and that, I think, is, while an altruistic motivation is certainly quite a bit different from the way that the world looks at it. We not only want to know what will happen to this planet on which we live, but we want to know what will happen to us in eternity. So let's begin with what we know. And I hope you brought your Bibles. And we're going to begin tonight with what I call Bible Fundamentals 101. What we know about the end of time. First, we know that the world will never again be destroyed by water. And you came in knowing that already, so I wanted to simply put that on the list. Reaffirm what you already know. The Bible says back in Genesis chapter 6, you know when God destroyed the world with a universal flood, and he did that by water. Of course, the flood is by water. And immediately after that universal flood, we find God giving the first man and woman 
Not only a promise, but also a prophecy. And here's what he says in verse 11 of Genesis chapter 6. Thus I establish my covenant with you. Never again shall, I, shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood. Never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. Now you could submit that to a committee. They might mess it up. But the way it's written, that's quite clear. Skip down to verse 13. I set my rainbow in the cloud, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and earth which is, of course, a repeating of the promise. And I will remember, verse 15, I will remember my covenant, which is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. The waters shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. And so God clearly wanted the early man, Adam and Eve, to understand, and as well as, as Noah and his uh, seven family members immediately after the flood, he wanted him, them to understand that uh, the world is never going to be again destroyed by water. And so we repeated that prophecy and that promise a number of times. And so that's some consolation to us right there. Despite all the flash flooding that we've had here in the southeast during this year already, we, we do have that knowledge, that confidence that that is not how the end will come. God will never again destroy the earth with water. Number two, we know that this planet and all that it contains will someday be incinerated. It will be burned up. We know that because the Bible tells us so. Second Peter chapter 3 verse 10. In that entire chapter, or for at least for the most part of that chapter, Peter's discussing the end of time, and he's talking about when the Lord comes back and when he'll judge the world in righteousness. And down in verse 10, he says, But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night. You're familiar with this verse. In which the heavens will pass away with a great noise, the elements will melt with fervent heat. Here it is. But both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. By the way, Peter then states in the very next verse, if you'll look down in verse 11, that since this is the case, since there's going to come a time when the earth and everything in it that we know of will be burned up, he says that ought to serve as an incentive, as a motive for righteous living. Because we're not going to stay here forever, is his implicit message. It also speaks to the matter of materialism, doesn't it? All those things that we have worked to build and to accumulate in this life, someday going to be gone in the twinkling of an eye. All of those beautiful homes and everything that man has created will someday be incinerated. And little wonder that Jesus, back in the Sermon on the Mount, encouraged us to lay up our treasures in heaven where nothing can corrupt, and not on earth where they can be corrupted. Here's a third thing we know as we're following this theme of Bible Fundamentals 101 about the end of time. As we stated earlier, this is in fact a matter of universal interest. People in the world want to know if life as we know it will end when a meteor strikes the earth. Or again, whether it will happen uh, because life is destroyed gradually by climate change. That's the one we hear most about. Or even when aliens come and annihilate the human race. Every now and then you'll see a movie about that. There are people that will take that quite seriously. But Christians want to know what will happen because everything that we do in our lives is pointing us to that moment. And I hope that you live with that constant awareness in your heart and in your mind that the end of time is coming. The Lord will come back and he'll judge the world in righteousness. And the question, as Terry mentioned a month ago, that ought to be in our hearts on a daily basis is we'll be, re we, we be ready when that time comes. And so in a recent, uh, I'm about to tell you where I get all my education, in a recent Frank and Ernest cartoon, Frank is walking along, I think this was in, in last week. Frank is walking along and he's gazing up toward the heavens. And in doing so, he runs into Ernest. 
Ernest says, why don't you look where you're going? And Frank says, I am. I hope you got the spiritual import of that. Christians may be found gazing toward the heavens for the exact same simple reason. We are looking where we're going. Paul's instructions were in Colossians 3, 2 and 3, set your minds, your affections, your aspirations on things above, not on things of the earth, for you died and your life is hidden with Christ and God. And then he explains the reason, the motive for that kind of mindset in verse 4 when he says, when Christ who is our life appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. And I hope you got that. We won't appear with Christ in glory till he comes back. And he's not going to come back until the end of time. There are all kinds of views and theories on that subject in the religious world. All you've got to go do is to go to a, a, a bookstore. Well, you don't have to go. You can go to Walmart, Target, and you can find any of Jerry B. Jenkins and Tim LaHaye's books, the Left Behind series, uh, even some uh, movies that were based on some of those books, uh, has, has gotten a lot of attention, garnered a lot of interest in this subject in which they set forth what they think the end of time will be like. Now, I'm going to say a little bit about this a little bit later on, but the problem with their books and their theories is, of course, that their premise is premillennial in nature, and uh, that is not biblically founded. But fourth, back to our list. We know that the time will come when the Lord will come back, but when that time is, is unknown. I didn't know how to state that any simpler than that. We don't know when the end of time will come. And the Bible verifies in a number of different places the fact that this is something that we can mark down that we don't know. Now, there's some things that we can know, and John writes about those in his first epistle, and he said, we can know that we know this. But here's something that we can say with absolute 100% confidence that we do not know. And if anybody tells you they know, then they are not biblically founded. Immediately after delivering that powerful five foolish virgins and five wise virgins parable over in Matthew 25, Jesus then says, Watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour in which the Son of Man is coming. He said almost the exact same thing a chapter earlier in Matthew 24, verse 42. And then in verse 43 and 44 of that same chapter, he said, but, but know this, that if the master of the house had known the hour that the thief would come, he would have watched and not allowed his house to be broken into. And then in verse 44, he says, therefore, you also be ready for the Son of Man, watch this closely, is coming at an hour you do not expect. Now let's explore that idea a little bit more because it is so absolutely important and it's essential to our understanding uh, what we're talking about tonight in terms of the end of time. I remember hearing a rather gross but amusing story that went something like this. Right after his graduation from high school, Chuck began working in a machine shop in Houston, Texas. And one of the men that worked near Chuck in that machine shop was a fellow by the name of Tex, if you can imagine that. Living in Houston, <laughs> this guy's name was Tex. And Tex was most definitely what Reader's Digest would refer to as an unforgettable character. I mean, he, he would just, you know, he really was a character in every sense of the word. And Tex spent most of his adult life operating a turret lathe there in the machine shop. He was a typical machinist. He always wore a little gray and white striped engineer's cap that was always greasy. He wore overalls that didn't need to be washed so much as they needed to have an oil change. You know what I'm talking about. And so every day he came home looking like that. And of course, he chewed tobacco. It was somewhere in the job description. He, he chewed tobacco and he chewed it a lot, which meant, here's the gross part, he spit a lot. Well, as he ran the, the lathe, Tex would reach back, he would grab a fistful of that stringy stuff out of his back pocket, cram it into his mouth, and then he'd chew on it for an hour or so. 
And that entire process took place without his eyes ever leaving his work on the lathe. Well, Tex could easily chew his way through several pouches of that stuff in, in a week. One hot, stick, sticky Texas night, Chuck, working nearby, noticed a Texas-sized cricket on the floor of the shop. And as he looked at the little critter, he began to notice that it was almost the exact same color as the tobacco in Texas back pocket. Now, don't get ahead of me. All right, you already have. And so immediately a diabolical plan formed in his mind. Without Tex knowing it, he strolled over, stepped on the cricket, trying not to damage it too, you know, you know what I'm talking about, kill it, but don't damage it too much. And he picked it up and he placed it very gently into the top of the tobacco pouch in Tex's back pocket. And after a while, of course, Tex needed to replenish his chaw. And so he reached back and he grabbed a fresh fistful and in went that cricket along with a mouthful of tobacco. Now, we're not told exactly of Texas' reaction to Chuck's mischief, but we'll just say that Chuck can now receive visitors. <laughs> and he is taking nourishment through a straw. But as I said, Tex was quite a character. And it was the kind of fellow who had an invisible clock, a sensor down inside of them, so that he rarely ever had to look at a clock to know what time it was. Somehow he always knew when it was getting close to that last whistle of the day, the time known by everybody in the shop as quitting time. And he was always ready, washed up, ready to punch out when that moment of emancipation started. And so on one occasion, Chuck said that he mentioned to Tex that it was about time to start getting ready for quitting time. And Tex replied, listen, boy, I stay ready to keep from getting ready for quitting time. Now, that's a bit of homespun advice, but I suggest that that would be very applicable to our subject at hand. It would be best for all of us to just stay ready, to keep from having to get ready for the time when the Lord will return. So many people want to be able to set a date. They want to know, what date can I circle on my calendar so that I'll be ready, so that I can make my preparation before the Lord comes back? Why don't you just go ahead and do it now? Don't waste your life in sin. Get ready and stay ready. So that later on, you won't have to make preparation when the Lord comes back or it won't be too late. Perhaps one new beatitude would read, blessed is the person who stays ready to keep from getting ready. Remember the Lord did say in Matthew 24, 42, watch therefore for you do not know what hour the Lord will come. The Bible is very emphatic about the fact and very clear on the point that there will in fact be a quitting time. Our time here on earth, the Bible says in principle on every page, is finite. We're not going to stay here forever. This planet was not intended for us to inhabit this place forever. We know that, and everything that we have is temporary. I've heard that Marshall Keeble used to say that one of these days, the Lord is going to come back to this earth with his big ring of keys and say, gentlemen, it's closing time. And what will you do then? That idea may have less impact on our lives than it might have just a few years ago, because lately it seems a lot of people have been making predictions about disasters, about apocalyptic events, including the end of time. And some of you can remember uh, the hullabaloo that was made a while back, and by a while back, I mean 1990 or so, about the projected earthquake along the New Madrid Fault in, uh, on the West Coast. New Mexico scientist Ivan Browning projected a 50-50 chance of a major quake that would devastate much of the mid-U.S., and let me tell you what, that is cataclysmic, that is catastrophic, if that, in fact, were to come to pass. Other scientists scoffed at his prediction, but there were some people who listened and took that very seriously. Schools in parts of five states canceled classes for that day because they thought that the end of the world as they knew it was coming about. And I'm happy to report the end of the world 
did not take place. That's rather obvious, isn't it? We're here tonight. But there was no devastating quake. There was no traumatic disaster as had been predicted. We're, we're getting pretty much used to false alarms. We read the books, we read the articles, we see things on, on TV, we hear the sound bites on our radios. In fact, we're starting to feel like the characters in the story Chicken Little, you know. And we've been told so many times that the sky is falling that it's kind of lost its impact. And I'm not sure that we would believe anybody if they had any credibility to them. I remember reading about a Sunday school teacher who was preparing a lesson for his uh, Bible class of young people in Knoxville, Tennessee. And the reason I know about it is because he wrote an article about it that was printed in one of our Brotherhood papers. And I read that some year, years ago and found it to be quite interesting. And that class had requested a discussion of the last days and the second coming. And, and the teacher remembered that there was a very popular book about the supposed rapture that had frightened a lot of people that had been published a couple of years earlier. And so he went to a nearby religious bookstore and, uh, to see if he could purchase a copy of that book to show to his class. And he couldn't remember the exact title. So he explained to the salesperson the nature of the book, and she said almost immediately, Oh, you must mean the book, 88 Reasons Why the uh, Rapture Will Definitely Come in 88 which is a rather intriguing title if you think about it. 88 reasons why the rapture will come in 88. And then he said, that sounds like it. And consulting her computer index, she then looked up and said that also came in a 1989 edition. <laughs> that also came in a 1989 edition. And he said he couldn't keep from laughing out loud. The clerk then said apologetically, we sent back our unsold copies last spring. That would have been the spring of 91. And he said, I can certainly understand that. There are few things more out of date than a prediction that the world will come to an end three years after the date of its supposed demise. Impressionable people, though, sold their possessions, sold their houses, quit their jobs, spent their life savings, holed up in churches on the basis of just one misguided and misinformed prophecy. All they had to do was read the Bible. But of that day and hour knows no one, not even the angel of heaven, but my Father only. Matthew 24, 36. Now, you may have noticed that people have incredibly short memories, especially for predictions that the end of time is near. No matter how many people set dates that are never realized, there will be people who will take them seriously. I think for the most part, absolutely good-hearted, sincere people, but they will believe that and they will act accordingly. And it seems to not matter that Jesus himself said that not even he knew the day or the hour of his return. That's not to take away from the veracity of biblical prophecy because the Bible does have a great deal to say on this issue. There will come an end to life as we know it. That is a Bible fact. Science seems to be just as adamant on that point as Bible-believing people, but just for different reasons. No one knows, though, when that will be. And I hope if you forget everything that I've said tonight, you'll go home with that in mind. No one knows when that will be. We may be here for another 2,000 years before Christ fulfills His promise to return. People may be on this planet for another 2 million years. Or He may come back tomorrow. Or we may not make it home tonight. But that would be okay too, wouldn't it? Even so, come Lord Jesus. Listen to me now, please. Nobody knows, no matter what they say, to the contrary. In fact, I'm going to go out on a limb and say this. If someone has pinpointed a date on their calendar and has circled it in red and says that is definitely the time when the Lord is coming back, you can know that that is the day when he will not. Because he said it will be at a time when you do not expect 
Now turn for a moment, if you will, to Matthew chapter 24. Here's where Terry began stepping all over my material. And, uh, but he was exactly right. I want to fill in, flesh in a few of the blanks in Matthew chapter 24, because you may have noticed that much of the material in popular books on end times is based on the information supplied in Matthew chapter 24, especially as per LaHaye and Jenkins and that series of books that I referenced a moment ago. The main problem with that is, though, that they use the wrong half of the chapter to try to prove their case. Take a look at the chapter with me for just a moment, and then we're going to move on and we'll quit. There, there's a lot to say about this absolutely fascinating chapter, but I want to point out just a few things that I think are germane to our discussion tonight. There are actually two distinct subjects being discussed in this chapter. Number one, the destruction of Jerusalem. Number two, the end of time when the Lord comes back. Let's read the first three verses because that really sets the stage for what's discussed in the remaining part of the chapter. Then Jesus went out and departed from the temple. And his disciples came up to show him the buildings of the temple. By the way, Mark's account in chapter 13, beginning with verse 1, gives a little bit more information about this discussion than does Matthew's account. But still, this is enough for us to know where they're going with this. And, and so, here they are at the temple. And Jesus said to them, Do you see all these things? Assuredly, I say to you, not one stone shall be left here upon another that shall not be thrown down. Clearly, Jesus is talking about the destruction of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple which the Jewish mind could not fathom. Verse 3, Now as he sat on the Mount of Olives, his disciples came to him privately, saying, Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Now, here's the thinking of the disciples. Please note that it's referencing the destruction of Jerusalem in verse 2, when the Lord says, Assuredly not one stone shall remain upon the other. That shall not be thrown down. Clearly by their comments in verse 3, though, the disciples thought that he had to be talking about the end of time and the destruction of the physical universe to be talking in such cataclysmic language. If the temple is going to be destroyed, no stone will be left upon another. That's got to be when the end of the world takes place. And so they asked, tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? You know, a great number of sincere people, I think, misunderstand what's going on in Matthew chapter 24, just like those early disciples did by thinking that this entire chapter is an ongoing description and prophecy of the Lord's return and the end of the world as we know it when it is not. But note, and this is paramount to understanding the chapter, that two subjects have been introduced in the first three verses, the destruction of Jerusalem introduced by Jesus, and then the end of the world inquired about by the disciples. No wonder Jesus begins his discourse by saying, take heed that no one deceives you, because isn't that exactly what is going on in our modern world when people open this chapter and say every verse here relates to the end of time? So here's a basic breakdown of the chapter. Verses 5 through 35 is the Lord's discussion of the destruction of Jerusalem. But how many times have you heard or read someone use all this material to say that these are the signs of the end of time. You know, wars and rumors of wars and so on. Verse 34 is clearly the break-off point in the Lord's discussion of the destruction of Jerusalem because in verse 34 is where Jesus says, Assuredly, I say to you, this generation will by no means pass away till all these things take place. Now, some people will try to tell you that the word generation in verse 34 means race. And it's just saying that the human race will still occupy the planet when the end comes. But the word here used, the Greek term genea, means generation in the typical sense in Scripture of approximately 40 years. It never means race in Scripture. That's at least what I understand from my readings. Then it would be proper, I think, to underscore or highlight the word that 
and verse 36. If we read it with a slightly different emphasis, it makes even more sense. Jesus has just described what will take place leading up to the destruction of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple. And then verse 36, he's now ready to address their question. And so he says, but of that day and hour, no one knows. No, not even the angels of heaven, but my Father only. Of what day are you referring to? The one you ask about. About when will the end of time come? So having exhausted the subject of the destruction of Jerusalem, he now turns his attention to the question his disciples raise. What will be the sign of your coming at the end of the age? And this is just absolutely foundational and vital information that every person in our world today ought to have at his or her disposal. No wonder Paul said, study to show yourselves approved, a workman that needs not to be ashamed, handling aright the word of truth, 2 Timothy 2.15. So let me end by saying a few things about what we can know about the second coming. There are any number of people who live their lives if they really don't believe in the second coming of the Lord. And maybe they don't even believe that life as we know it on this planet will someday end. To them, life ought to be lived in the fullest worldly sense, like that old beer commercial that was on years ago, grab for all the gusto. That's their philosophy of life. Because that would be right, wouldn't it? If everything ends at the grave. They don't believe in a life hereafter. They believe that he who dies with the most toys wins, at least according to the bumper sticker, or that seeking and experiencing pleasure is the ultimate good that we can attain while we're here on this planet. A lot of people have bought into that philosophy, that worldview. Make no mistake about it, church. Even though we don't know when the Lord is coming, we do know that he is coming. Remember Luke's words at the ascension in Acts 1? What hope-filled words they are. Men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven, he will so come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. That's Acts 1 and verse 11. And Jesus himself said in Matthew 16, 27, For the Son of Man will come in the glory of his Father with his angels, and then he will reward every man according to his works. We know that his coming will be first of all without warning. 1 Thessalonians 5, verses 2 and 3. For you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night. For when they say peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them as labor pains upon a pregnant woman and they shall not escape. The point ought to be clear from the Lord's statement. God will not send out notices. He will not give everybody a 30-day warning to let them know when the Lord is coming back to judge the world. When he comes, he's going to come without warning. And whatever you're doing at the time will be the condition that he finds you in whether that be good or bad. The Lord is coming back, but he's coming back without warning. Number two, his coming will be visible. We know again because the Bible tells us so. Revelation 1-7, John wrote this, Behold, he is coming with clouds, and every eye will see him, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn because him, even so, amen. It will not be an event that someone will mistake for something else. There will be no escaping his divine presence. Number three, all will hear his voice. The Bible clearly teaches that everybody will hear the voice of the Lord when he comes again. It'll be so clear, so distinctive that everybody will immediately understand that what we're hearing is the voice of the Savior. Here's what Paul said by inspiration about that. 1 Thessalonians 4, 16, for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. And then the Lord himself said in John 5, 28, do not marvel at this, for the hour is coming when all, you know the passage, all who are in the grave will hear his voice and will come forth. He is not going to come to set his kingdom up on earth. His kingdom is already here. 
and has been since Pentecost of AD 33. Remember the Lord's prediction in Mark 9, 1. There are some standing here who will not taste death till they see the kingdom of God present with power. In your generation, you're going to see the kingdom come, says Jesus to that audience. And then Paul in that great resurrection chapter in 1 Corinthians 15, 24 says, Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, when he puts an end to all rule and all authority and power. Let's put those two things together very quickly. The end of time is not when the kingdom will be established on earth. The end of time is when the Lord will deliver his kingdom, his people, back up to God the Father. And we will live in his presence for all eternity. Folks, that's something worth thinking about. That's something worth placing and founding our lives upon, the fact that the Lord will return. I read a story about that I want to end with, a young woman in the early part of the 20th century who was seeing a young man, and the relationship had become serious enough, their romance had blossomed to the point that she anticipated at any moment that he might pop the big question. Now remember, this is the early part of the 20th century. Life is, uh, uh, you know, the dark ages, basically. And uh, so life was different back then, but sure enough, one beautiful spring day, he called her up and said that he had something very special on his mind, and he couldn't pick her up in his car, which happened to be an antique jalopy, pretty much all they drove back in those days, and, and he said, we'll drive out into the country for a picnic. Well, you can imagine what that young lady was thinking. And so they drove to Long Island. All the while, the young man seemed to be preoccupied, something on his mind as they drove in silence, and then they headed back into New York City. When they got into the city, they went back uh, all the way uh, to Central Park, and finally there, he broke the silence. Central Park would be the appropriate place for the big event to happen, he said. And so they drove through the park. The young woman's expectations just soared. She could already envision that engagement ring on her finger. And finally, the young man said breathlessly, the great moment is here. And he watched and pointed with great excitement as the odometer on his car slowly passed the 100,000 mile mark. And he said with ecstasy, there, everything is back to zero. And the young woman thought, yes, in point of fact, everything is back to zero. I've come to you tonight with one message. The return of our Lord will not be anticlimactic. You see, Bible prophecy was not supplied to us in great abundance to set us up for a fall so that when that time comes, we will say, is that all there is? No, I'm here to tell you that the Lord's return will far exceed our limited expectations. What began in a humble manger will be completed in wondrous majesty. What began on a cross will end with a crown of victory. But when will all that occur? Nobody knows, not even the angels in heaven. The best thing to do is to follow the example of Chuck's friend's text and to stay ready to keep from having to get ready for that moment to come. Stay ready for the most beautiful experience that God's children will ever have beyond our ability to even imagine. No wonder the Christian life was meant to be a life lived on the tiptoes of anticipation because, folks, we were not meant to stay in this old world. The older I get, the more I appreciate that wonderful gospel hymn that we sometimes sing. This world is not my home. I'm just a passing through. My treasures are laid up somewhere beyond the blue. When's the Lord coming back? When will we be judged? Don't know. He said when he was on earth, he didn't know either. But we do know that he's coming. The clock of life is wound but once, and no man has the power to tell just when the hands will stop at late or early hour. 
To lose one's wealth is sad indeed. To lose one's health is more. But to lose one's soul is such a loss that no man can restore. So the present only is our own. Live, love, toil with a will. Place no faith in tomorrow, for the hands may then be still. Pray with me, please. Gracious Father, we, we have so many things to thank you for. But at the very top of our list is the redemptive work that your son did on that old rugged cross. We are so grateful for the mercy and the grace that you demonstrated to lost humanity. And that means to us by the giving of your son, knowing that you had the power and the opportunity to prevent that death on the cross. And yet you allowed him to do that and he went to the cross willingly. No one took his life from him. He gave it up of his own accord. And for that, we're grateful. That's why we're here tonight, Father. On this August evening, we have chosen to come to a church building and to talk about spiritual things and to talk about tonight the thing that every one of us ought to be looking forward to with great anticipation, and that is the moment when your son returns and delivers his kingdom back up to you and that we're able to see you face to face. That's what we live for. And that's what causes us to sing, this world is not my home. And Father, we're grateful for that opportunity. Help us as we walk in this world as ambassadors for Jesus, that we might do so in an influential way, that our example and influence might be consistent so that others could look at our life and the joy with which we live our lives and say, I want some of that. I want to be able to live, to think, and have that kind of mindset and that attitude. And Father, we're grateful that Jesus made it all possible. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.